Welcome to Dr. Zoe Today, where the topics are always real, raw, and relevant about love, sex, and relationships. Warning, do not listen to this show if you are sensitive to controversial issues or easily offended. Dr. Zoe and her guests are not to be held liable for any shock, pissing of the past, sudden desire of change, or uncontrollable laughter. Now, here's your host, Dr. Zoe. Hey everybody, and welcome to Dr. Zoe today. And like he said, the topics are always real, raw, and relevant. We like to give you information about love, sex, and relationships. Tonight's show is exactly that. I have with me the author of several different books, including Why is the Penis Shaped Like That? And Perv, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us, which is the name of our show tonight. He's appeared on shows such as Chelsea Lately, Conan, and many more. I'm pleased to introduce Jesse Baring. Welcome to Dr. Zoe today, Jesse. Hi, Dr. Zoe. How are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm over good. here in New Zealand. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm so glad that we could coordinate this because you are in New Zealand, and I'm so glad that we were able to connect and, and coordinate this. Tell my listeners a little bit about how they can go and find out information about you and where they can find your books. Um, well, I suppose the easiest thing is to visit my website. I'm at www.jessiebearing.com. Um, my books are at most major bookstores, Barnes & Noble. Um, you can buy it online on Amazon, those types of places. Um, and uh, Twitter, at jessiebearing. Awesome, awesome. So I'm curious about you first. Before we get into some nitty-gritty stuff, I want to know about you and your personal journey and why you decided to write on these controversial topics? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think, I suppose I've always been fascinated by these hot-button controversial topics. I'm a psychologist by training. Um, mm. I tend to approach questions from a, a very sort of objective, hyper-rational, mostly evolutionary perspective um, mm-hmm. when I'm thinking about topics such as uh, sexuality and sexual deviance in this case. Um, I'm also gay, and, you know, I think I've, I've had my personal struggles with bigotry and prejudice and coming to terms with um, what many people considered when I was growing up, at least in the 1980s, you know, um, fortunately things have changed quite dramatically and for the better for gays and lesbians. But I do remember growing up during a time um, during the height of the AIDS epidemic, especially when uh, gay men, especially were subjected to lots of, you know, really vitriolic hatred Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, and ostracism. And I remember feeling like an outsider, you know, like a monster, essentially. What area I grew did up you grow up in? Well, mostly at that point I was living in Virginia. Um, Virginia um, is sort of a suburban area of Washington, D.C., and then we moved to Ohio, the middle of Ohio, a fairly conservative town. Mm-hmm. Um, so middle America, basically. Middle America. So, like, when did you, like, come out to your family, or was it always known that you were gay, or how did that work? No, and I think it made it even more difficult because it, because I did such a good job of hiding it. I remember mm. um, in, being in high school, for example, you know, deliberately trying to create this ruse that I was straight and dating girls and, and even trying to date the most promiscuous girls so people wouldn't um, <laughs> even, you know, even question it. Um, yeah. Of course, you know, I uh, went to my high school prom and drank as much alcohol as possible so I would pass out before I would have to actually make a move on my, on my date. Um, I solved that problem. But um, I, I, didn't, you know, I didn't come out probably, 
to, you know, I, I came out sort of in trick, trickles. I, I told yeah. a couple people here and there. I made them sort of swear not to tell anybody else. But yeah. it wasn't until my mid-20s, I'd say, that I was completely out of the closet. When did you start? Was it after that or before that that you were just really intrigued with, like, you know, the psychology of sex? I think I'd always found it intriguing, and I like—I kind of liked the idea that it made people uncomfortable. I've always gravitated to scientific. I, ca- I kind of like that too. If you haven't, yeah, noticed. material, material that, um, <laughs> yeah. because it, it, I just wanted to know why it made people tick um, yeah. like that. Uh, and, yeah. Um, so it was something that I, I'd always been interested in, but I also was reluctant to explore it from an empirical or scientific perspective mm-hmm. until I was comfortable with my own sexuality, because I, I knew that people would sort of assume, well, why is he writing about that? You know, right. something about him. But, so once I was able to get over that, then I then I could really sort of explore it in depth. Awesome, awesome. So, so as somebody who has done so much research on the psychology of sex, let's talk about how our sexuality originates. Like, Jesse, at what ages do males and females become in touch with their sexuality? Well, um, you know, developmentally, studying the origins of human sexuality, looking at children, for instance, obviously that's a really difficult subject area for many different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, big, the biggest reason is, is actually not a, not a sociopolitical one, but it's just simply sort of an empirical one. Um, we can't, you know, do any good experimental or laboratory-based research on the development of sexual orientation because you can't right. take – you know, a Lock group of infants and, yeah. yeah, you can't randomly assign them to the experimental condition and subject them to, you know, all these <laughs> variables and see what affects their sexual development right. as they get older. Right. So, so unfortunately, you know, the only thing that we can really do is to either, either use um, animal models for comparisons or um, the sort of retrospective accounts of adults looking back at their earliest childhood memories about their sexual feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we can, we do have some good data from that, but they have their limitations. So what does the data reveal? Like, so well, for a male, like just a roundabout, like from the yeah. research that you've done. Well, there there seems to be um, a sensitive period of sexual development between at least this is especially true for for boys, I should say, between the ages of about five and nine, um, and those aren't hard and fast ages. There, there's flexibility sort of at either end of that scale. A couple of years here and there, they're going to be individual differences, but that seems to be the period, and it's it's shockingly young so, for most people. Because yeah, so like age, what yeah. type of developments happen between five and nine? So people don't well, think, okay, well, that's not when, you know, masturbation starts and things like that, but maybe they've discovered, you know, I mean, they're yeah. wiener or what, like Oh, absolutely. Between five and nine, like, yeah. or is it that they're starting to um, be attracted to a certain, you know, what, I mean, what exactly happens right. between five and well, nine? Well, th- these data are mostly from adults that have some sort of right. um, Recollection. sexual arousal preference. Yeah, and these, these are people that are sort of different from the norm, which is, of course, just sort of a heterosexual average. So looking back at their, their earliest memories of what made them different, that that's the sort of period of time where they sort of fit in. And it's not, it's not sexuality at that age as we know it, sort of the adult reproductive sense of right, having these right. sort of libidinal desires, but there are these sort of um, curiosities, uh, feelings, um, orientation, for lack of a better word, toward okay. that particular thing. So a foot fetishist, for, for example, and I, I should say that I absolutely abhor feet. I find them disgusting, and, and my feet are absolutely hideous, so that's probably part of the problem. Um, <laughs> but the, 
but you know, if, if you ask them when they first became aware that they were sexually aroused by feet, they'll say things like, well, I remember you know, wrestling with my older brother's friends um, and their feet were flying in my face. Yeah. Or I remember uh, massaging my mother's foot and she was you know, groaning in pleasure. Um, th- those types of things. So okay. you know, somehow they were attracted to it. Um, it, it, you know, they might have had some sort of happenstance arousal. Right. They just Somebody else's sort of, response. Right. Right. Yeah. But, okay. Now, with so five to nine with boys, what about girls? So girls, you know, there are there are cases of this is I mean the technical term is sexual imprinting. Um, okay. At, at these ages, girls are much less likely to get um, sort of stamped um, by these. Um, carnal desires uh, at that at that age, they're much more they're much more resistant to sexual imprinting, in other words. So they they maintain a, a more open um, what's called sexual plasticity or fluidity as they develop. So they're much more likely to be able to get aroused by a broader array of stimuli than men. Um, so men, even if it's not you know a, a paraphilia or a fetish like you know being in a feet, um, men you know, have a tendency to have very specific types of things that turn them on or specific, specific types of people that turn okay. them on. And they're kind of, they're much more likely to be locked into that arousal pattern. Girls, women can go, you know, beyond that. They can transcend that and get aroused by a broader set of things. So with girls, so it's a later age with girls where kind of their sexuality originates. Well, no, that's not to say that they're not, you know, they, they don't have these incipient feelings even at younger ages too. It's, it's just that um, for whatever reason, there's a sex difference in the likelihood of, you know, those early experiences sort of okay. shaping their adult sexuality. The sexual imprinting, like you said. Okay, so with boys five to nine, what would be the roundabout span with girls? Um, you know, adolescence, I think, uh, you know, and, and, and specific experiences probably that happen in maybe, you know, early puberty um, I remember, I remember like, reading some, some, some accounts of uh, women that are into S&M. One, one case in particular, a woman was into being spanked, and she remembered um, an incident where she um, was masturbating as a, as, a, as a girl, maybe 12 or 13, in her room, and her stepfather found her doing that and punished her by you know, spanking her, basically, which you know, kind of made the problem even much more complicated. Or girls like me who went to private school and we got paddled, and then you know, everybody yeah, kind of like yeah. this naughty turn on to be paddled. Okay, yeah. do genetics play a role in how someone is? Like, you know, I mean, how much does genetics determine our sexuality? Whether we're very sexual, not so sexual? Where do genetics come in, Jesse? Oh, I think. Um, genetics and, and uh, neurocognitive architecture of the brain's particular neural patterns and so on, I think all of those things are fundamental to our erotic fingerprint, um, who we are um, incontrovertibly, and that's something that we can't change once it's stamped in place like that. But we, we're, we're still learning a lot about the genetic foundations of sexual orientation um, and, and human sexuality more generally. Um, if, if you think about um, a fetish, for instance, like being attracted to latex, uh, mm-hmm. clearly that's not purely genetic. I mean, nobody has a gene <laughs> for latex arousal because, you know, we didn't, you know, that's a fairly recent technological innovation. Uh, tens of thousands of years ago during human evolution, there, there, were, there wasn't that, that product to be fixated on so that you can have a gene for it. So that right. tells me that there, there's probably a genetic susceptibility to being sexually imprinted by some sort of uh, fetish object or 
um, stimulus in the environment, but that's it's relatively open-ended. It or just the or just the sexuality part of it. Like some are more sexually driven, some are less yes. sexually driven. Some of our needs yeah, are yeah. very um, we're very heightened when it comes to our sexual needs, and some of us don't don't need as much sex. Everybody's different. Like every and that's I love what you right said. Right. I always talk about. I say it probably a million times. My clients probably get sick of saying it, and I'm sorry, listeners, if I say it so much, but. I always say we're individuals, so we're individually unique, live your authentic life, and you're like a fingerprint or a snowflake. Don't, you know, try to be like anybody else. Just be yourself. And I love what you said, erotic fingerprint. I love that. That is really hot. I love that. <laughs> okay, so I, I personally, from what I've seen genetically um, in families, when, you know, um, the parents are high sex, the children seem to be more high sex, um, you know, it just seems to be a pattern and within families. Family, it's generation, you know, after generation. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm always just curious what the studies would say yeah. on that. There are there are some hereditary studies on hypersexuality, and hypersexuality is basically exactly what it sounds like. That you know, you need, or you know, you sort of are physiologically and psychologically capable of experiencing a greater number of orgasms, usually per right. week, it's measured, um, than the average per week person. or per per like session. Well, <laughs> It depends on how you measure Yeah, it depends on the individual, exactly. Um, Let's talk about this for a second, and it's something that a lot of people don't like to talk about, but, you know, I think that, you know, you and I have no problem addressing these types of issues. When someone as a child experiences sexual molestation, don't you think that that affects their sexuality as an adult? And I know, again, there's no studies. We can't lock up babies like rats and do these studies. But in hindsight, you know, in the, you know, looking back, is that the case? Um, yeah. And, again, these are it's mostly sort of indirect evidence by looking at case reports and, and people who have experienced traumatic incidents of sexual mm-hmm. molestation and how it affects their adult sexuality. If it happens during that sensitive period of development, it's very likely or very possible, I should say, that um, they are going to be sexually imprinted. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the greatest misconceptions or myths, I suppose, with um, pedophilia or child molestation is that if you are molested as a child, then you're going to grow up to molest other children. Um, you know, there is, there is some data to suggest that that does occasionally happen for psychoanalytic reasons, you know, playing the part of the um, aggressor, you know, rather than being the victim and so on. But from a physiological arousal perspective, it's much more likely that the child is going to be um, sexually imprinted on the particular type of experience that, that occurred with right. the molestation episode. Right. So you're actually much more likely to be sexually imprinted on the type of adult figure um, or older figure that uh, did abuse or you in that way. the experience and what happened. The nature so, of the experience, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. so just like the banking episode that I talked about before. Right, exactly. Um, and it's, it's, that's disturbing in its own right, actually. And I, I think that um, but people have to simply understand the developmental mechanisms underlying it and not blame themselves for, you know, these feelings that they have no control over. Right. Um, and as long as, you know, as long as they can somehow channel that into a healthy sexual outlet, 
um, as adults, then a healthy um, sexual outlet. Yes, indeed. Where harm, um, where harm is not, you know, harm is not does not occur. So, in other words, that's what that's you're okay. saying for all of our listeners out there, if you were molested as a child, and let's say, you know, something happened that actually, you know, during that sexual imprinting stage of life, and it doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, channel it and have a healthy sexual uh, life relationship. Um, you can yeah. overcome it, but a lot of times it does affect you know, it's going to have an effect on um, what might turn you on or what do- right. turns you off either way. Of, because yeah. if it was One like a horrific I... experience, it could be something that, you know, causes fear. But if it was something that was, you know, even though it was molestation, if it was pleasurable, you hear about all these, you know, girls who fall in love with their fathers and their uncles and they're, you know, and it's not healthy and it's wrong. But them as a girl, they, um, they identify, you know, sex with love or any kind of right. sexual, you know, act with love. So um, you hear about these stories. Right, and one of the things that I talk about in my book, Perv, is that um, child sexual abuse is oftentimes what I call a ticking time bomb, psychological time bomb. That is where if it occurs, um, you know, sometimes when it occurs, it's not sort of immediately harmful or emotionally mm-hmm. damaging to the child. You know, they might not, they don't realize what's happening, of course. They block it out. Um, they, I think they, that a it, lot of people block or, it out. Yeah. It and then it affects them later on in life, yeah. right? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, they realize later as an adult yeah. exactly the trust that was violated and what the person did to them that should have known better, um, and that's where so much of the trauma occurs, and there's sort of reanalysis right. of the incident. Um, and that makes, it, that makes it just as bad as if it caused physical pain at the time. Jesse, um, from a psychological standpoint, from, you know, what, why does that happen? Why do we, because I know even for my own, uh, in my own personal life and a lot of my clients' lives, why does it happen that there is a, a phase in life, especially if there's a traumatic experience or things like that? For instance, my father passed away when I was eight years old. So a lot of the memories surrounding that didn't come back to me until I was like 20, 21, 22. So yeah. why does that happen that we kind of like block uh, traumatic experiences out and then it comes back later in life? Well, I mean, it sounds very Freudian, but it is probably true, actually, in this case. that It's, it's, an, it's an incident of um, repression. You know, you're not right. consciously forcing it out. That would be suppression if you're deliberately doing it. But Freud thought that if it's just simply too much for you to handle emotionally at that age, right. you basically quarantine off that information or those memories. Um, and ultimately, they will revisit when, when you're able to sort of grapple with them. Mm. Um, uh, you have the emotional space to do so. Right. And some of the best, you know, some of the, uh, many clinicians will say that uh, the best evidence of, and, uh, or trying to distinguish between a real memory and a false memory. You know, um, you hear lots of times people going to therapists and clinicians and then planting memories in your head and, right. and it didn't actually happen. But the, the best evidence of a real memory is that it spontaneously comes back to you. It's not something right. that people trigger and by it's conversation. Vivid. Right, like that. right, yeah. right. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Do you think that um, – that boys and girls, when they reach an age of becoming sexual beings or that sexual imprinting, do you think that they know whether they're going to be attracted to um, the same sex or the opposite sex? So in other words, in your research, do you believe that we're born gay or straight? Or do you think that it's Um, circumstances or surroundings? I think it's a complicated question. It's it's probably more complicated than many of us like to consider, actually. That's why I asked you. Yeah, I think it's it's very fashionable to say that, you know, people are born gay and so on. And I think there's a lot of 
there's a lot of persuasive emotional currency behind those types of arguments. Mm -hmm. However, um, you know, I think it's impossible for me to say, for instance, that I came out of my mother's womb, you know, attracted to men. Um, I didn't, you know, you don't come out of the womb and immediately go into some sort of um, sexual testing apparatus where they see who you're attracted to, which sex you're attracted to. But I do remember, you know, being very young, you know, probably about six or seven and taking the clothes off my Superman doll, um, and having no interest in my sister's Barbies or anything like that, you know, and um, and 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 feeling like it was something that I needed to hide, um, and yeah. you know, I, I, that's not something that I had any control over. So whether it happened, whether I was born you were six that way or, or seven, or you were checking out Superman's cock to see like what he was yeah, packing. It was very, it was very yeah. disappointing, by the and way. His, was, and his muscles flat. and his. So the point is that it, I had no control over it, whether I was born that way or whether it happened in the first couple of years of my life. Um, so, so I do think that, you know, we, we have, we have a, a pretty good sense of the sex that we're attracted to. And many people are bisexual and they're attracted to both. Um, but it's not something first of the person once they're sexually mature. Okay. All right. So in your book, The Perv, or Perv, I'm sorry, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, you talk a lot about sexual fetishes. What are some of the more outlandish ones you think my listeners would be surprised about? Oh, God, there's so many. I don't even know where to start. I mean, there's, there's over, five, I think there's 560-something at last count sort of um, formally identified clinic, clinical fetishes and paraphilias. Mm. And, and first of all, I should say that a, a true paraphilia means, if you have a paraphilia, it means that you're, you're, you're almost exclusively dependent on that particular thing that gets you off. You need that, basically, to have an orgasm. But don't people have um, multiple ones? Like, isn't there... It's possible to have... Yeah, yeah. Yep, it's possible to have multiple. It's not, it's not, it's not mutually exclusive. You can, it can be very complicated. You can have all sorts of different ones coming together. But um, you still need that particular constellation of um, stimuli or, or whatever it is in the world to get you off. So right. um, one, you know, one, one example is called a metaphilia. Um, and this is a an erotic metaphilia? attraction. A metaphilia, which is okay. from these are these are largely Greek term terminology, and it's, of it's um, an emetic is, for example, something that makes you vomit. Um, so people who are emetophiles are aroused by either feeling like they're vomiting or the sensation of themselves vomiting on hmm. their partner or having their partner vomit on them. And this is actually wow. one, surprisingly one of the few paraphilias that um, I found in the literature was mostly um, uh, manifested in women. Um, huh. there, was, there, were, there were women that, there was a woman I remember who, who talked about going, growing up and um, going to Catholic school and there was a particularly nasty nun um, who used to paddle her and those types of things just like you experienced. Um, and she, and she, she saw her one. Mine was a male. It was a male principal, though. Oh, so no. yeah. So this is a, a nasty yeah. nun, apparently. Okay, a nasty nun, nun is is paddling yeah. her and what? It made her throw up. Well, or? Then, she saw, then one day, I guess she saw the nun um, sick to her stomach and vomiting oh. in the bathroom or something, and she took she took like the sadistic pleasure in seeing. The oh, she loved experiencing it. Experiencing that. Yeah. And she she developed this whole thing for you know wanting her 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 partners to vomit, and she mm. became a lesbian as an adult. And um, had a nun fetish too. Interesting. <laughs> but, um, Very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. There's there's a there's another one um, that is a really interesting phenomenon. These are um, people called objectum sexuals um, or objectophiles, 
and these are people who have relationships, basically. They feel sexually attracted to um, inanimate objects in their environment, so they feel like they have a relationship with a particular chair, for instance, or a particular ladder or a particular Do they grind and fuck the chair? I mean, like, how does oh, yeah, this work? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, this is, and it's different than just sort of like a shoe fetish or a chair fetish or whatever because in those cases you're attracted to just, you know, the general category. Okay. With object, objectophiles, they want that it's particular. It's a specific item. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. So gotcha. there's a woman that was, you know, she was in love and she actually married the Eiffel Tower. Her name was Erica Eiffel. Went through a whole elaborate um, marriage ceremony. Then she got divorced and she married, um, or maybe it happened the other way around, the, the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and they think that these objects have personalities and temperaments and, of course, sexual feelings, too. And they have, and, you know, they view them Wow, the psychological profiling on somebody like that would be extremely interesting. Okay, but as far as, okay, there was another one I heard you, I don't know what it was, but I heard something about someone throwing themselves down the stairs and that was the only way they could come or Uh, what was that all about? That's called climacophilia. Um, And apparently these are people who, and I I should say, you know, it could be just one or two people. I'm sorry, the visual, the visual. I I mean, people, the visual of just like someone, was it male or female throwing themselves down the stairs to have an orgasm? Male. A male. So he's like tumbling down the stairs and he busts a nut. Like that's the only way he could bust a nut or what? Yeah, apparently, you know, they, it's probably not not good to live in a one-story ranch house. I guess oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! I wonder how that came about. Yeah. That's interesting. Is there a story there? How that came about, or no? Well, um, that one, I don't know the childhood history of how exactly that happened. Um, okay, it, what's it, the difference it, between what's the difference between men and women when it comes to sexual fetishes? Like, do Men have more, women have more. What is the, what's the ratio there? Well, this, so this maps on to our discussion earlier, childhood sexual imprinting, because as adults, it's men who are much more likely to have these really bizarre, weird, um, specific types of paraphilias and fetishes. It's something like 99 to 1, 99 paraphilic men to every one paraphilic woman. woman. And again, these are clinical cases. Wait, this repeat that because I want my listeners to hear. Okay, so not every woman out there is as sexually freaky as Dr. Zoe or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so it's 99 men. Oh, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that you're not sexually freaky or that most women aren't sexually freaky. In fact, I think there's an argument to be said for Okay, but wait, but kinkier, with fetishes. Okay. Yeah. Means but that, with what it fetishes, means is that, it's 99 male to one female. Yes, and this again is you, huh. know, you need this thing. You need this thing to get off. Women can be considered kinkier in the sense that they can get off by much more things than men. Got gotcha. you. Particular type of thing. Okay. Um, so, um, so there is a major sex difference. Absolutely. I mean, you could, it's not it's not shocking really if you think about it. If you, if you look at just the the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and you look at the Sexual Disorder section. Right. Um, it's almost exclusively a male phenomenon, these types of, you know, forensic types of cases with men. Okay, but with um, the women, because you and I had a discussion about this, and but with the women, it's, what, what were you telling me? With the women, it seems like it's more outlandish or they're into some, like, seriously sick shit, like more. Well, and no offense to anyone listening, love you, love to all, one love. But you you were telling me about, like, the women are into, like, a lot of, like, cannibalism, stuff like that, like more so than men, right? Is well, that right? Well, women, 
No, not. I mean, the cannibalism thing is mostly men. I'm not aware okay. of sexual cannibalism with women, but but women are more likely to be masochistic. Okay, um, that's in, what in we were their, talking about. Okay. In the sadomasochistic sort of BDSM or bondage discipline submission masochism, that that sort of thing. They they want to be the submissive partner, and more likely. I mean, there are female dominatrices and, and those types of things, of course, but. Um, you know, they're more likely to be on the receiving end. What was the deal with the cannibalism and sexuality? Where does that come into play? Oh, there have been a couple, I mean, historically there have been a couple of cases, but I did write about this um, notorious case with um, a German cannibal. Um, This was probably about, this was probably about 10 years or so ago now, um, who placed an ad. Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. (laughs) He placed an ad your mind is so interesting, Jesse. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm loving it. I feel like, have you seen the movie Lucy yet? Uh, I have, yeah. I okay, well, I feel like Lucy when I talk to you. I think my pupils are dilated and I'm like, like yes. my brain is just like, wow. Are you getting okay. around? Uh, slightly. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. okay. Because you're just so highly intelligent and well-studied. Okay, German cannibal puts ad in... Oh, please. Puts ad in newspaper, like the personal ads, like, I want to fuck you and then chop you up a, and eat you, or what? Well, uh, there, was a, there was a website at the time called the Cannibal Cafe. Oh, nice. Shut down. Beautiful. Um, and, and it was, I mean, in if you Germany. look at the web, the, In Germany. Yeah, this was okay. And then the webmaster, the webmaster said that the purpose of this originally was just for sort of fantasy purposes and people right. were acting these things out. But there was a classified section or, you know, people looking to hook up with cannibalism mm. fetishes and so on. And there was a guy that placed an ad saying that he was looking for, he was a cannibal, a sexual cannibal, and he was looking for, you know, like a fit 18 to 25-year-old male to be consumed um, for sexual gratification, blah, blah, blah. And some guy responded and they set up a, you know, they set up a date. The guy, the, the guy that was going to be eaten went to the other guy's house. Um, Why? Why would you say, here I am, 18 years old, (laughs) please eat me, kill me, chop me up, and eat me for dinner. Uh, Well, wait, fuck fuck me first because it's a sexual cannibal, uh, right? Horrible. Yeah, they actually, yeah, I didn't see the video footage, um, but I did see the transcripts, and basically they dined on his penis together. They what? Okay, I think we lost Jesse. So what he's basically talking about is that there was someone who put an ad in the paper um, to have sex with a young man, a man in Germany, and then uh, have sex with him and then eat him. So that sounds really crazy. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and we will rebook Jesse Berry to come on again to Dr. Zoe today. We love you guys, and we're so happy that you're listening. Of course there's going to be technical difficulties when we have someone from New Zealand. So um, there's a huge time difference, too. I think it's like a 16-hour time difference. But we'll go ahead and have Jesse Berry on again. And thank you all for listening to Dr. Zoe today. (laughs) 